Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime Podcast. My name is Elise, and if you're wondering about the name, (laughs) I love to listen to true crime while I clean. So because cleaning and true crime are my two loves, I've combined the two. And every week I post a new whole house cleaning motivation video on my YouTube channel, See Elise. And in the corner of the video, I'm in a little bubble telling you about a true crime case that's interesting to me. So cleaning and crime. But for some, the cleaning footage is too distracting. Or some people just prefer to listen to their true crime and not watch it. If you want to check out the video version of today's story, be sure to check out my YouTube channel and you'll find a playlist of all of my cleaning and crime episodes. But if you just came here for the crime and not the cleaning, you're in the right place. I'm uploading my older episodes of Cleaning and Crime in podcast form, and once all the old ones are up and I'm caught up, my upload schedule will be weekly, the same day the video version goes up on YouTube. Some of the earlier episodes do have slightly lower sound quality than the newer episodes, and that's just reflective of improving my skills as I went, but also, in the beginning, I only ever intended for these to be videos. So as the episodes progress, hopefully you'll notice the sound quality improving. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast. Some episodes may be disturbing to some listeners. Be sure to check the show notes for each episode for specific trigger warnings. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Today's true crime case is the story of Stacy Castor, the Black Widow. We're going to talk about another murderous woman. Stacy Ruth Daniels, her maiden name was born July 24th, 1967 in Clay, New York. Stacy met her husband, David Castor, in 2001 through her boss, and he swept her off her feet and they got married in 2003. This was the second marriage for both of them. They both had grown children, so this was their second chance at romance. David had a grown son, David Jr., who was grown out of the house, full adult, and Stacy had two teenage daughters, Ashley, the oldest, and then Bree, the youngest. Now the girls, being teenagers, they weren't super thrilled about the marriage. They didn't want their father replaced, and David was pretty strict around the house. He expected them to do whatever he said the second he said it, and he didn't have an interest in being their father figure or replacing their father. Like, he had a grown kid out of the house, he had been there, done that, so he was just like, you live here, you follow my rules, whatever, I'm just here to marry your mom, so. (laughs) So it's not like anybody disliked anybody else. It was just like a little tense because the teen girls were like, why did you have to get remarried? Just a little bit of, I think, pretty normal teenage tension, right? You tell a teenager to do anything, they will do the opposite. He owned his own business. He was a heating and air conditioner repairman and installer. And Stacy worked as his office manager once they got married. In interviews, Stacy said, you know, they had a normal, happy marriage. Of course, there was arguments. They had their troubles, but what married couple doesn't? One such argument took place in August of 2005. Now, every year in August, David would close his shop for the last two weeks of the month, and he would take a vacation in that time. He wanted to do that again this year, but he wanted to go alone with Stacy as like an anniversary wild outing, and he wanted to go the full two weeks. And he kind of waited until the last minute to decide that, And by that point, Stacy said that Ashley was working and she couldn't take time off and she didn't want to leave her younger daughter, Bree, at home alone for two weeks. And so she's like, I I don't really want to pick up and go for two weeks. I can't, you should have planned it sooner. So they had a big argument. Now neighbors say Stacy and David argued for like seven hours in their garage screaming at each other. Boy, to be one of their neighbors, oof. Now Stacy said that after the argument had pretty much wrapped up, David was super pissed, 
and he grabbed a bottle of Southern Comfort and proceeded to get drunk for the entire weekend. Then at 5 a.m. on Sunday, August 21st, Stacy said that David locked her out of their bedroom and he stayed in there the entire day and all night. Now she just assumed that he locked himself in his room and he was sleeping off his bender. And she said she kept putting her ear up to the door. I can hear him snoring. I guess he's okay. But he was not okay. On Monday morning, David didn't come out of the room to go to work. So he didn't show up to work. So Stacy called 911. Police arrived. They're banging on the bedroom door. No answer. Stacy tells police that she's very concerned for David, that David had recently lost his father and he's been very depressed and he's been drinking a lot. And she was worried that he may have hurt himself. And she tells the police officer he has a shotgun under his bed. I'm worried, break the door down and go in there. So when the police officer busted down the bedroom door, he found David nude, lying face down in the bed, dead. There were two drinking glasses on the nightstand. One contained a green liquid, and one contained what looked like a brown liquor. Also on the table was a bottle of apricot brandy and a bottle of diet cranberry juice. There was an empty, open bottle of antifreeze on the ground with the cap also lying on the ground. Just from looking at the scene, police immediately thought, this looks like somebody who committed suicide by drinking antifreeze. Now, one cop is talking with a distraught Stacy while another police officer is investigating the scene, kind of going around the house, taking a look at things. He goes into the kitchen, pulls open the garbage can, and right on, just sitting right on top of the garbage is a turkey baster, which gave him pause. It's kind of a weird thing to open up the garbage and just see a turkey baster just laying on top, you know? He picks it up, pulls the little squeeze ball off, and sniffs it, and he's like, I smell alcohol. There's alcohol involved, we're taking this. So he takes that as evidence. David's autopsy shows the telltale crystals in his organs of poisoning by antifreeze. If you drink antifreeze, it leaves these crystals in your organs and they never go away. Now, antifreeze has been used as a means to commit suicide in the past. It's not unheard of, but it is a very painful, long drawn out death, which David probably would have known considering he owned a heating and air conditioning business. Even as little as two shot glasses of antifreeze can kill a grown man. Now the coroner ruled David's death a suicide. And that's that, case closed. Just kidding. This could have ended right here. But Detective Spinelli, one of the investigators in this case, he wasn't feeling it. Something was off and it was bugging him and he couldn't let it go. Now, some of the things that jumped out to him, the suicide itself. David's side of the family, including his ex-wife, were all adamant there's no way that David would have committed suicide. Now, I feel like that's something that family members often say in cases of suicide. You never know what someone's struggling with alone, but everyone told the detective, there's no freaking way. And so he's combining that with all the other things that made him suspicious. Like the scene itself, Detective Spinelli thought was very feminine. Suicide by poisoning and poisoning in general is a very feminine, stereotypically, way to go. Men typically don't use poisons in homicide or in suicide. They use a gun and he had a gun under his bed. So why would he go out of his way to drink antifreeze and die slowly and painfully all weekend? And even the drinks on the bedside table, apricot brandy, diet cranberry juice, stereotypically more feminine drink choices. And those weren't his typical drinks of choice. This is random, but also it is statistically very uncommon for someone to commit suicide while naked. Who knew? 
in an interview with ABC's 2020, Nancy Grace <laughs> was interviewed because she's always there <laughs> in true crime documentaries. And she was like, if you find someone from an apparent suicide naked, oh no, start running the lab tests. <laughs> Not my best Nancy Grace, but I tried. Also, Detective Spinelli found it very suspicious that David Castor's will had been changed last minute. Very suspicious indeed. The new will left everything to Stacy and her two girls, and it completely left out David Jr., David's son. His name wasn't even mentioned. Poor David Jr. was like, wow, I guess my father didn't really like me very much, which is so sad. Plus, David and Stacy, I'm not saying that a, a two-year marriage means you don't love each other, but they'd only been married two years. And the fact that he left everything to his wife of two years and her daughters, and he didn't even really get along with the daughters very well. It seemed very strange to everyone. So Detective Spinelli calls bullshit. He's like, it's not adding up, but he needs more than just a hunch to dispute the coroner's findings. So he decides like, hey, I'm gonna go talk to Stacy's ex-husband and see what he thinks about the whole thing. So he starts digging around, trying to find, like, where can I find this guy? We're gonna wanna chat with him. And he finds out he can't chat with Stacy's ex-husband because he's dead too. So who is this dead ex-husband? Michael Wallace. Stacy met her first husband, Michael Wallace, when she was 17 and it was instant. Oh my God. She knew within the first five minutes that she was gonna marry this guy. And they did get married in just a couple of years and then they had their first daughter, Ashley, in 1988. And then three years later, they had the younger daughter, Bree. There wasn't much of a close relationship between Michael and Ashley, the oldest. But when Bree was born, she was daddy's little princess. She could do no wrong. Stacy stated that it was obvious, at least to her, that there was a difference in the relationships and she believed that Ashley noticed. And because of that, Stacy and Ashley became best friends. Which I think if a mother and a daughter combo say that they're best friends, I don't think that that ever bodes well. Hot take. Like, I'm not your friend, I'm your mom. Eat your damn peas, you know? <laughs> Ashley, however, in later interviews stated there was no ill will between her and her father. She loved her father and she wasn't weirded out that Brie was the little princess. They just had very different personalities. Ashley was closer with her mom and Brie was closer with her father. That happens all the time. Michael worked nights as a mechanic and Stacy worked during the day at an ambulance dispatch company. So they actually rarely saw each other, but despite them both working full time, they were struggling financially. Over time, you know, stress with money and like never seeing each other, they started to drift apart. And rumor has it that both Stacy and Michael had a number of affairs. Now, at the end of 1999, they've been together since 1985. Now it's 1999, okay? Around Thanksgiving, Stacy told a friend, I wanna leave Michael, what do I do? And her friend was like, take the number of my divorce attorney, here you go. And she told her friend, I don't wanna mess up the holidays for the girls, so I'll, I'll start the ball rolling in January. But shortly after that conversation with the friend, Michael started to feel ill and his sickness persisted through the holidays. Family members that saw him over the holidays remember that he was very sick. He was unsteady on his feet. He was coughing and he just seemed swollen. Then Michael was very unsteady. He was having trouble walking. He was having trouble speaking. Now family urged to go to the doctor after the holidays, but he didn't get that chance. Now Michael was alone with Ashley at the house and she saw him lying on the couch and he had been sick. So she assumed he's taking a nap, 
but he wasn't taking a nap. He died right there on the couch. An ambulance was called, he was taken to the hospital, and he was pronounced dead at the hospital from an apparent heart attack at 38. Ashley, being only 11, was devastated by the death of her father, and she felt like it was her fault because she was alone with him and she didn't know. But there's nothing she could have done about it, and she was 11. Poor thing. That's very traumatic. Now, doctors told Stacy, we think Michael had a heart attack. And she was like, yep, okay, cool, thanks. That was it. Michael's sister was like, he's in his 30s. I mean, he was pretty healthy. Maybe we should do an autopsy? And Stacy was like, no, mm-mm. No, I believe the doctors. No, no autopsy. So, now that Michael has died, Stacy cashed in on a $50,000 life insurance policy. She used that to pay for the funeral expenses and then she took her daughters to Disney World. Cool. So Michael died in the year 2000. Fast forward in time again, back to 2005. And the investigators working on David Castor's case, when they find all this out about Michael, they're like, holy shit. Throughout the course of the investigation into Michael Wallace, they find out where he was buried and they're like, wait a minute, isn't that the same cemetery that David Castor's buried in? It was, and Stacy had buried them right next to each other. She buried David Castor, her second husband, next to her first husband, and there was a little spot for Stacy in between. I guess they're gonna share her in the afterlife. How romantic. Polyamorous ghosts. Freaking wild. Now maybe it wouldn't be weird to be buried in between your two husbands if you hadn't killed them, you know? Now all of this is suspicious AF, right? So Detective Spinelli wants to investigate further into Michael Wallace's death, the first husband. Now, exhuming or digging up a body is not how it seems on TV. Like they're like, let's just dig him up. But most judges are not just gonna be like, yeah, sure. Especially after a long amount of time has passed. You can't just dig somebody up on a whim. But luckily, investigators worked hard, compiled all the evidence, and they were able to convince the DA that they did not believe that David Castor committed suicide. They believed he was a murder victim and that Michael Wallace was the first victim of Stacy Castor. And that if they could exhume the body, they could look for those crystals and see if it wasn't a heart attack, it was antifreeze. And the DA was like, yeah, that sounds great, dig him up. So they exhumed Michael Wallace's body. And guess what? They found crystals all over his body and all of his organs. The antifreeze obviously is long gone, but those crystals, they stay forever. Detective Spinelli and Detective Brogan drive out to Stacy to interview her and she's like, what? They're like, we just need to interview you one last time to close the investigation. And Stacy was obviously super surprised that they were there. And she was noticeably nervous, pacing. She was like, I thought this was over and done with. And at one point she told Detective Brogan, it's like David's hand is reaching out to me from the grave. Ew, what a weird thing to say. And that comment was so suspicious that both of the detectives like looked at each other like, so they're like, come on, let's go down to the station and chat, okay? Spinelli asks, there were two drinking glasses on the night table. Now you said that you poured David some diet cranberry juice at one point, right? Which glass do you remember pouring it into? And he shows her a picture of the night table and she looks and then she goes, well, when I poured the antifree, I mean, when I poured the diet cranberry juice, 
Detective Spiller's like, would you say antifree? Hmm? You said antifree. Stacy's like, you know what? I don't like this. You're trying to blame me. You're trying to frame me. I'm done. I want an attorney. So Spinelli's like, okay. So he's grabbing his photos and putting them back in his folder. And on top ends up being the photograph of the turkey baster in the garbage can. And Stacy's like, hey, what's, what is that? What is that? Spinelli's like, what is what, honey? She's like, what is that picture? That turkey baster? What is that? Why is that there? She's not very good at this. Detective's like, don't worry about it. So I think he like shuffled the pictures to put the turkey baster on top to like rattle her. It's a very good move. Love this guy. So Stacy gets to get her lawyer and she goes home. The first thing she does is call her daughters. And she's like, girls, they think I did it. They think I killed David. I didn't do this. The first thing detectives did was tap Stacy's phones and put cameras all over the outside of her house, pointing at every angle. They were listening to and watching every last move. That week she made a ton of panicked phone calls to friends and family, and she kept saying, I do not believe that they found antifreeze in Michael's body. I don't believe it, but they did. Now, Ashley. Ashley had just graduated from high school and had just started college, and it was her first day. And investigators went to campus to tell Ashley in person that her father, Michael, did not die of a heart attack and to show her the evidence that they found, the crystals in Michael's organs. And she's shaken, she's crying, she didn't believe it. She bolted out of the room and ran to go call her mom. And of course, that phone call is recorded. And she calls her mom and she's like, mommy, they came to my school. They came to your school? And Stacy says to Ashley, you know what? It's been a hell of a week, let's just get drunk. Let's get drunk. Ashley's like, what? She's like, just come home. Just leave school, come home, and we'll get drunk. Of course, Ashley's a teenager. She's like, shit, yeah, okay. Cool. So Stacy and Ashley have some mother-daughter bonding and they drink together. And Ashley ends up passing out. She wakes up the next morning, a little hungover, but she goes to class and her mom calls her after class and she's like, hey girl. <laughs> she's like, come back, let's drink some more. Let's drink again, but this time let's get really drunk. Ashley's like, it's not even noon. And her mom's like, it'll be noon by the time we're drinking. Ashley comes back, they drink again. The next morning, Ashley's younger sister, Bree, goes into Ashley's room to wake her up and she finds Ashley in her bed, unresponsive. Her eyes are open. Even though she's not responsive, Bree said that Ashley looked very frightened. Next to Ashley on the bedside table was an empty bottle of vodka and several different bottles of pills. Brie is obviously distraught. She's screaming, runs into Stacy's room and demands Stacy call 911 right away because there's something wrong with Sissy. Stacy frantically calls for help. And as she's calling 911, Brie finds a note on Ashley's bed and then hands it to her mother. She's like, you've got to read this. And Stacy's on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. And she's like, oh my God, she left a letter. There's a note. Like she really wanted the 911 dispatcher to know that there was a suicide note. There was no signature. Everything was typed, even her name at the bottom. I won't read you the whole thing, but it does say, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, mommy, the police think it was you, but it wasn't, it was me. I killed my dad and I killed my stepdad and now I'm killing myself. Please don't be mad at me, mommy. Now, Ashley is near death and she's being rushed to the hospital. Doctor said that if she would have been 15 minutes later to the hospital, she would be dead. Now, Ashley wakes up in the hospital 
confused, no idea where she is or what's happening, and there's cops around her, and they immediately start asking her, how many pills did you take? Why'd you try to kill yourself? Did you write this note? And she's like, whoa, holy shit. She's like, I didn't do anything, I didn't take anything, I didn't take any pills, and what note? And they're like, did you try to kill yourself? And she's like, no. She told them that she did remember her mother saying that she might not be around to celebrate her 21st birthday, so they should celebrate now while they're together. She remembered that her mother gave her a drink and it tasted horrible. So her mother gave her a straw and told her, there's probably just too much vodka in it. Keep stirring it, keep stirring it. Her mother told her, put the straw to the back of your mouth and just drink it down. And Ashley did what her mother told her because she trusted her. The next thing she remembered was she was tired, she went to go lay down, and then she woke up in the hospital. Now, while Ashley was in the hospital recovering, Detective Spinelli was given a copy of the alleged suicide note, and as soon as Detective Spinelli read it, something jumped out at him. The note said, I killed my father and my stepfather with antifree. Antifree, with no Z. Now, if you remember, when Spinelli was interviewing Stacy, she said, when I poured the antifree, I mean diet cranberry juice, but that wasn't the only time she said it. She had repeated, I didn't pour any antifree. I don't know about any antifree. She always said it like that. And so as soon as he read that in the note, he was like, oh, Stacy fucking wrote that note. Seriously, why can't all detectives be Detective Spinelli? Like, just nailing it at every turn. And all the detectives were like, holy shit. Like, we knew that Stacy knew that we were closing in on her but we didn't think she was gonna try to kill her own daughter to cover it up. Now detectives made the conscious decision to just immediately arrest Stacy at the hospital. When interviewed, the detectives told the media that they believed this had become a public safety issue and so that's why they were forced to arrest her very quickly. It sounds like a plot out of a movie. I mean, if Ashley hadn't survived and detectives didn't catch that Freudian slip of the antifree, she could have gotten away with this. And here's the extra fucked up part. After she was caught, she still held onto the story that Ashley wrote the note and that Ashley killed both her first and second husbands. As trial is being prepared, Stacy maintains her innocence and everyone started choosing sides. Even Stacy's mother, Ashley's grandmother, she sided with Stacy. Even still, Ashley's grandma went on camera to ABC's 2020. She blamed Ashley. She's like, there's no way that Stacy has it in her to kill two men, let alone two men that she loved. And she believes that Ashley did it. Lady, are you serious? Can you imagine hearing your grandmother say that about you on national television after your mother deadass tried to kill you? Ashley was 11 when Michael died. In that same interview with 2020, Stacy said that it's, easier for people to believe that she did it because she's the mom and she's the adult. But kids do these things all the time. All you have to do is read the news. Kids kill people all the time. <laughs> and that is the narrative that Stacy's defense team went with. Basically all defense needed to do was create reasonable doubt. They just needed one juror to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah it was probably the 11 year old. That tracks. So defense ends up digging through the Castor house and they find an old letter that Ashley wrote to an old ex-boyfriend. And in it, she said she was so devastated by their breakup that she was thinking of committing suicide. And the defense team is like, that's it. 
She was a miserable, suicidal maniac. That's our defense. Oh, and Ashley, she was jealous of her little sister and her little sister's relationship with her father. And Ashley didn't get along with her stepdad because he was a disciplinarian. I mean, look, it was either Ashley or it was Stacy. And the jury needed to decide which one. Which is horrifying to me. That is like one of my biggest fears. Being framed for something and having to like go through trial for something I didn't do and like being found guilty and having to go to jail forever. I probably shouldn't tell the internet what my biggest fears are. Moving on. Okay, January 2009. The mother versus daughter trial begins. Prosecution puts a 20-year-old Ashley on the stand first. She's the first witness. And it's pretty heartbreaking. She has to recount the day that her dad died when she was 11. And they, they work her up to the day that she was drinking with her mother. Ashley said she did drink the drink her mother gave her even though it tasted terrible because she trusted her mother. You don't think your mom is going to kill you. And through the whole testimony, she's crying, she's shaking. And Stacy sat there at the defense table, just completely deadpan, emotionless. She never looked up at her daughter, never made eye contact with her daughter. It is so fucked. I mean, I hear my daughter cry from stubbing her freaking toe. My body reacts, I jump, I run. It's, it's a biological reaction. And to think of a mother not having that, it's just awful. So Stacy takes the stand, which is a gamble, and it's a gamble that the defense team didn't make until the night before. So the defense puts Stacy up on the stand, and she basically just gets up there and calmly denies everything. But the prosecution had a secret weapon. Do you remember how detectives wiretapped Stacy's phones? Oh yes. It's all coming full circle. That phone tap recorded every conversation, every phone call. When investigators were going through all of the calls, there was one particular call that Stacy made to a friend. And in pauses and in the background, you can hear clicking. What could it be? They could hear Stacy typing on her computer while she was on the phone. Forensic analysis on Stacy's computer and on her Microsoft Word autosaving data lines up with that phone call. And you can see the suicide note in that Microsoft Word saving BS. Oh, technology. The smoking gun. The smoking Word document. <laughs> now still, the prosecutor is legit yelling at Stacy. He was very theatrical. He's yelling about all the evidence, trying to rattle her, but she doesn't. She doesn't rattle. She stayed totally chill on the stand, like she had taken a Xanax or something. Even while being screamed at by this guy, he's like, you wrote that note, didn't you? And she's like, no, I did not. And he's like, and we caught you, didn't we? And she's like, no, you did not. It's really bizarre to watch, but in the end, after four days of jury deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty for second degree murder of David Castor, her second husband, and for second degree attempted murder on Ashley. A month later at sentencing, Ashley spoke to the court, mostly to her mother. And she said that she hates her mother, but at the same time, somehow she still loves her mother because she's her mother. And she formally said goodbye forever. When Ashley was interviewed, she was asked, you said goodbye forever, so never again? And Ashley said, never again. She tried to kill me. It's not rocket science, people. 
Stacy Castor was sentenced to the max, 25 to life, for second degree murder of her husband, David Castor. She was sentenced to an additional 25 years for the attempted murder of Ashley. And she was sentenced to an additional one and a third to four years for forging David's will. It blows my mind that after all the evidence comes out and she's convicted, Stacy is still just like, nope, I didn't do it. Figure it out. In 2014, David Castor's family succeeded in having his grave site moved to a different cemetery and they got him a whole new headstone to erase Stacy's fucking name from the thing. After the conviction, Stacy maintained her innocence and she said that she would maintain her innocence until the day she died, which she did on June 11th, 2016 of a heart attack. No foul play was suspected. And she never got to file that appeal she wanted, eye roll, and she never saw her daughters again. Stacy's story was turned into a lifetime movie, Poisoned Love, the Stacy Castor story. So I guess that's something. So rest in peace to Michael Wallace and David Castor. And I hope Michael and David's families are doing okay and found some peace. And I hope Ashley and Bree are doing okay. That is a lot of trauma to go through at such a young age. That was way beyond their maturity level. Hopefully Stacy is not resting peacefully. And I think I can speak for everyone when I say, fuck that bitch. Thank you for listening to Cleaning and Crime. If you'd like more content from me or you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube or TikTok or follow my socials, all of which are under the name C. Elise, S-E-E-E-L-I-S-E. If you have any questions or any case ideas that you'd like to share, email me at cleanclean at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. These episodes include my personal opinions, and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes. All parties described are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time.